Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider how literature, particularly science fiction, and especially the work of Octavia Butler, can inform and influence social change. I was so intrigued when John Franco, our associate producer, proposed interviewing our guest today, Adrienne Marie Brown. She has a practice of taking the principles of science fiction, and particularly um, the science fiction of Octavia Butler, and applying them in a systematic way to make positive change in our very real current world. I mean, that is, yeah, I just love that. That's a book dream right there. The way she explains it, it makes perfect sense. But I never would have come up with it. I mean, it had never occurred to me. No, nor nor to me. So Adrienne Marie Brown is the co-editor of the anthology Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements. She's helped to cultivate work in thinking about Octavia Butler and emergent strategy. She's gathered a loose-knit global network of people interested in reading Octavia's work from a political and strategic framework. She's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, the radical self and planet help book, Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds, and the recently published, We Will Not Cancel Us, and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice. And she's the co-host of two podcasts, including Octavia's Parables, which was just named one of the New York Times best new podcasts of 2020. And for people who aren't familiar with Octavia Butler's incredible body of work, she was the multiple recipient of both the Hugo and Nebula Awards. She was also the first science fiction writer to receive a MacArthur Genius Award and the first Black woman to receive widespread recognition in the genre. She wrote many, many books and is perhaps best known for her novels Kindred and Parable of the Sower. So we started our interview by asking Adrian how she first came into contact with Octavia Butler's work. I discovered her in college. You know, I was starting down the path of like reading Philip Dick and other sci-fi writers. And um, it was like, oh, here's this black woman who's written science fiction. Octavia came to speak at my college and I got to go to an event and see her speak, hear her speak. And I didn't know then that she was going to be who she became to me. I knew right away that she was writing things that felt very compelling to me. I think it wasn't until I was more involved in movement work that I realized just how brilliant her writing was as a way of pointing towards how humans could interact with each other differently, interact with change differently. What I found was I just kept coming back to the text and seeking deeper understanding in the text. And when you keep coming back to something, you unveil so much inside of it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the term that I think was coined by your co-author, Walida Imarisha, this idea of visionary fiction and how it differs from science fiction? Yes. Yeah, so what she was articulating at that point was 
We need fiction that is not just imagining other worlds, but explicitly imagining other worlds through the lens of those things we understand to be harmful in our current world. So we want to imagine other worlds that are explicitly not patriarchal, not racist, right? Worlds where many worlds fit, worlds where people of color and poor people and homeless people and others are seen as serious members of society, not to be outcast. When she and I got together, we really sat down and like got into it, right? It's like, well, what all matters inside of this? So we really started paying attention to, are we receiving and developing narratives that help people understand how change happens, right? Because so many movies and stuff we see, it's like there's a singular hero who has to appeal to like the top echelons of power and that's how change happens. But that's not how it happens in real life. In real life, those upper echelons always defend themselves. They don't surrender. And we have to claim and take the justice that we know we deserve. So the other aspects of visionary fiction that felt important to us were that it is hard and realistic and hopeful, like life, and that it is neither utopian nor dystopian, but that it really understands that wherever you see a utopia, it's probably only able to exist because there are some dystopian conditions nearby. Again, just like we experience right now, right? There are some people, even in the midst of the pandemic, who are living a very utopian, fantastic experience and are not touched, right? because they are so disconnected from what the other humans are experiencing. So those are some of the aspects of it. And it really feels like visionary fiction can call on all genres. Yeah. So in your book, Octavia's Brood, you said all organizing is science fiction. We're dreaming new worlds every time we think about the change we want to make in the world. Yeah. I just love that idea. And I wonder if you could say a little more about the connection between fiction and activism. Yeah, I think one of the things it took me a while to understand is that, you know, when we say we're doing organizing work, we're being visionary, it's not like hyperbole. (laughs) You know, it's like we really are trying to see beyond what we see currently and we are nourished by what we're seeing beyond. So you're asking people to imagine, and we talk about this, imagine a world you've never experienced before. So when we talk about like, we don't have to have rampant homelessness everywhere, even though for most of us, we've never seen a world where we didn't have homeless people. Mm. When you start to think of it that way, you realize that a lot of times when we are imagining the future, we're actually doing the work of futurists. We're doing the work of speculative fiction, right? We are imagining, well, if this condition goes on or if this one changes, if we were to strategize in this way, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we could change our condition. One of the things that feels really important to name here is that we currently live inside of a world that someone imagined. And we can forget that because it feels so like this is real. This is the way things always were and always will be. But that's not the case, right? Someone imagined monarchies and they imagined God had made it so only their family would ever have power. And someone imagined white supremacy, right? There's no scientific basis for it. But someone imagined that because they were afraid of something different than them, they imagined a a scenario in which they were superior and they have enforced it so thoroughly that it holds up in court. You know, we talk about the fact that a white police officer can walk into a court and say they imagined they were in danger, even though there was no 
evidence that they were in danger. There was no weapon. There was nothing else. But their imagination that they were in danger can hold up as a justifiable reason why they killed someone, right? So imagination is quite dangerous. And if we want something different, the work is to imagine it first. And then we practice and we bend and we change in order to become something that could live in that world that we have imagined. Yeah. It's such a revolutionary idea, literally, right? Because you take all of these negative imaginings that feel so ingrained in our lives that we assume it can't be otherwise. Yeah. And by giving us the permission to think of it as fiction, we can turn it around 180 degrees. That's right. So one of the things that we were up to, Walida and I, when we were touring that book is we were doing all of these science fiction writing workshops where we would really engage people at a collective level how do you imagine together? A lot of the struggle and suffering we're in is because we're in singular imaginations, you know, imaginations that were really only trying to work for the person who was doing the imagining and those who look like them. And so what does it look like to bring people together to be like, okay, if we were to imagine the transportation systems differently in this city, who would need to even be at the table to be a part of that imagination process? We ended up with so many systems that don't work for so many people because we didn't have people with disability at the table. Mm. If they were there, it would have been like, oh, there's no question that there need to be ramps everywhere and elevators and escalators and different ways for people to get up and down. And there needs to be Braille on everything. And there needs to be sign language interpretation everywhere. There's just so many things that would be there if you had all the people were actually involved in shaping it. Right? If children are involved in shaping a space, you don't end up without an area to play in. If you're a parent shaping an economy, there's just like so many places where you can be like, oh, huh. Like, what would it look like if it wasn't just white men shaping everything? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. like, we would have so many more options. Mm-hmm. This feels like the right time to talk a little bit more about emergent strategy and mm. In your book, Emergence Strategy, you offer Nick Obolensky's definition of emergence. Emergence is the way complex systems and patterns arise out of a multiplicity of relatively simple interactions. So for people who aren't familiar with this concept, how does emergence relate to literature, to fiction? Octavia Butler was a great teacher for me in these ideas. So she was studying slugs and she was studying bees and wasps. And she was studying how does change happen? And I started getting obsessed with looking at starlings and murmuration, shoals of fish, and trying to understand, ah, these creatures are doing this to avoid predation. They understand that change is constant and they're figuring out ways to move together in relationship with each other to stay safe through all these changes. And I think if you read Octavia's work, you see it, especially in the parables. So I was like, what would it look like if movements for social justice were like a murmuration of birds? Mm. If we didn't have to check each other and question each other and doubt each other and run each other through all these paces, but that we could feel trust and that we could move as one when we needed to, and that we could split ways without feeling in competition with each other. I love the analogy that you use about the collective power of oak trees with their root systems you know, that their roots are all connected under the ground. And so when there's a hurricane, you can't blow over one oak tree because it's connected to all the other oak trees. And I just thought, yeah. (laughs) Yes, right. What are the methods or strategies of resilience that we see in nature? And then do we understand what ours could be? 
mm-hmm. Black people, in a lot of ways, have held each other. We have been oak trees to each other. We have also been songbirds for each other, singing to each other, here's the way, here's the time to run, here's the path, you know, really understanding what does it take to keep a sense of connection to life in circumstances that really want to convince you that your life doesn't matter. It takes an immense amount of resilience to survive that. So emergent strategy includes adaptability and change. And to say that we're in a time of change that requires adaptability (laughs) is a big understatement. So where do you see the openings for us? What are the possibilities today Mm. that we didn't have even a year ago? Mm -hmm. I think we're in a really fascinating time where a lot of people who did not understand what mutual aid was a year ago are now practitioners in it. Yeah. So people think about how can I help my neighbor? We've all had like someone look out for us in this period of time. Someone bring us a mask, someone bring us food. We've had that opportunity to care. And sometimes, you know, the care has just been like, I stayed in my freaking house, you know, like I didn't go see anyone. I didn't cook anyone a meal, but I stayed inside and that was the way I was caring for the whole. So I think that gives us a unique opportunity to say, okay, so we know that we we're able to care for each other, at least some of us, at least temporarily, what would it look like to build community around that and build a future around that? And then I think whenever you have like a change in the political landscape, there's a real opportunity to check in, like who are we politically right now? Mm-hmm. What values do we build that can hold us together through this next period? Mm-hmm. So now that that administration has changed, can we actually turn and do what we need to do around climate? Can we actually not just rail against someone who is egregious and horrible, but can we actually bring that energy and put it towards something we really want to move? So I've I've been involved with a social justice nonprofit called Sadie Nash Leadership Project for the last 15 years. It's an organization that supports leadership and activism among young women and gender expansive youth of color. Mm -hmm. So our new executive director is a woman named Tanae Howard. And I learned recently just coincidentally, that your work has been essential to her theory of change. And then Tanae was so excited when I told her we were talking today. So she has two questions that she'd like me to ask you. So is it okay with you if I ask Tanae's two questions? Okay, Mm -hmm. thank you. So the first one is, what aspects of emergent strategy have you found to be the most useful when working with young people? Is there a part of this work that you have seen that youth are particularly drawn to? Oh, I love that. I would say the creating more possibilities part of it. A lot of times when I'm in a space with young people, what they are feeling inside themselves is this burgeoning energy of like, things could be different. I can imagine a difference. I can imagine how I want things to be. And, you know, one of the blessings that people have when they're younger is this kind of like, we can still do it. Why bother being respectable po- respectability politics about it? Let's just do it. Say what needs to be said. Let's move. And I feel like right now, a lot of the uprising energy, I think that we're, we're energized by is really that energy of young people being in the streets. Like this is our future that we're fighting for because they have not settled yet for the idea that they don't deserve to have it all, to have what they want. And then I have seen... When I introduce these ideas of transformative justice to younger populations, a lot of times they really, really get it and they're really hungry for it. And 
they haven't had as much practice in being punitive to each other. And a lot of times young people are more in touch with that part of our nature that bullies, that part of our nature that can really try to isolate for the sake of seeming cool. And so when I introduce those ideas of like, yeah, what would it look like to really move from your compassion um, in terms of how you move? They're like, yeah, I really get Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) And I would like that. And then the second question is, Sadie Nash is doing more and more to center healing with our young people. And what do you think is essential or important for a community that is working to build healing spaces? Mm. I think that's great. Well, one thing is, I think asking people in the community, what helps you to feel healed and really responding to those things, because it's such a wide variety of things. So we did this exercise where we had people and we would create healing stations. So we would give everyone 10 minutes to pull out of your bag or out of, you know, whatever you brought with you, anything that makes you feel healed, grounded, centered, you know, that you Mm -hmm. can go on. And people would take these 10 minutes and they would build these healing stations. And then we would go around to the healing stations. We would take time and everyone would get to see each other's. And it would unveil so much about what the room actually found healing. Okay, can you imagine just for a minute if people in boardrooms across America, if Mitch McConnell, (laughs) picture Mitch McConnell (laughs) sitting at one of those, you know, gleaming wood tables with, you know, lots of important men around him. And if they open the meeting with everyone sharing one thing that they deeply needed in order to feel safe. I have this vision of Mitch McConnell pulling out a ratty teddy bear. What kind of world would we be living in if something like that could take place and if the people in the room took it seriously, you know, or at least open to the idea of sharing what they needed? Instead of, you know, the sound of a hammer, a gavel pounding on a table, if we opened with what we needed. I love that. I do too. The world is so much better. So much of what Adrian does is taking what we take for granted and thinking, well, this is how it has to be and making change seem possible. It's not just that, it's that she takes what we take for granted and she thinks about its impact on us. Yeah. It's not just that we just assume, of course, we should gavel in, you know, our official meetings, but she thinks about, well, what does that mean for us? Mm -hmm. I love that. There was one thing that she said that I didn't fully understand and I, I wondered whether we could unpack it a little. Sure. She was talking about transformative justice and introducing that idea to younger people. And she said they haven't had as much practice in being punitive to each other, which I didn't understand. because Yes, I initially had the same thought, which is really because, you know, middle school. <laughs> right. But I think what she meant was being officially punitive. You know, if you're in a school and you, you know, hit somebody, the school has a punishment for that, that you get suspended for three days. So young people aren't in the position to officially meet out that kind of standardized punishment. I see. And so therefore, perhaps they are more open to the idea that people don't have to be punished that way, that there could be other ways of punishing people, or and maybe even punishment isn't the right word. There could be other restorative justice techniques for addressing injustice. 
But at the same time, she talks about how young people are in touch with the bullying part of them. And so they can imagine being in the position of the victimizer and thinking, well, how would I want to be treated if I did something to someone else? Right. So next, we talked to Adrienne about her theory that in the United States, we're socialized in all sorts of counterproductive ways. She has this incredible term that she uses called anti-nurturing. She has this long list of things we do that are anti-nurturing. And these are things like devaluing our own pleasure and instead overvaluing our productivity or downplaying our emotions or learning to be really good at what's already possible and ignoring what is impossible. We asked Adrienne, what we could do to counteract these kinds of influences. One of the first things to me is always political education. Asking the question and telling people, go interrogate this for yourself. Do you actually feel free? Do you feel like you're in a society that is shaped for you? Do you feel like you're in a place that sustains you, that makes you feel like you have the permission to be more curious and so on and so forth, right? When you examine, you start to see, huh, hmm, hmm. (laughs) There's a lot of this that is actually not designed to help me to grow. The other thing I I often will say is equip people with better questions, questions that you can ask at any time that help you understand what's happening. So my mentor was Grace Lee Boggs. One of her questions was always, what time is it on the clock of the world? And that question always helps me step back, take a longer view, a wider perspective, and think outside of just myself or even my country. It's actually really healing to see yourself as part of an entire interconnected world. Other questions I love is, are you satisfiable? And who benefits from you not being satisfied, Mm. right? Who benefits from you not feeling good about yourself? And when you start to ask yourself these questions, I think that they are questions that help you unwind yourself from capitalism, from colonialism, and from systems of power over and help you to drop into something else that is interconnected. I remember a teacher asking me the question about collaboration versus competition. And I was in a room of other students who were mostly white and well-to-do. This was a elite college. And most of them were making the argument for competition. And I made the argument for collaboration. And my teacher was like, how will you practice this in your life? And the teacher was you know, (laughs) doing her best. I can tell that she was also like, yeah, that's true. We need the collaboration and I don't know how to get everyone there. And that question is always, always present to me. When someone tells me what they believe, I'm like, how do you practice that? I'm not interested in beliefs that have no actions attached to them. Octavia said, belief initiates and guides action or it does nothing. And I try to say that as often as I can to other people. What you do, that's how we make the world with what we do. And again, my mentor said, we have to transform ourselves to transform the world. In every decision I make, how do I make this another opportunity to practice moving towards liberation of myself and my people, moving towards feminism, moving towards abolition, right? (laughs) Moving towards fundamentally a world in which everyone has access to abundance and freedom. But then you have to factor in whether your liberation is intention, at least with the people who aren't doing the same analysis that you're doing. Yes. That's so hard. Well, and it is. But, you know, I think at this point in my life, there's a lot of people who mm, might think that they hate me, for instance. They don't know me. But based on identity, they think that they hate me. 
But I think that the thing that's being taken care of for them is about belonging. That someone has made the case for them that the only way they can belong is by defining themselves against something else, someone else, some other way Mm -hmm. of being. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true. I think we've got a long ways to go, but I think it begins by understanding that when people are acting against or pausing themselves in opposition to us, so often if you ask, what is it you really, really, really care for? Mm. What do you really, really care about? There's very few people who like under it all, when they lay down at night, the thing they care about is white power. Right. Right. I think for a lot of those people, what they care about is belonging. And where can they feel belonging? Where can they feel certainty in an uncertain world? And the heartbreaking thing is that someone has convinced them that not being a part of humanity is the way. So in pleasure activism, you talk about love as political resistance. Yes. What would it look like if increasing all of the love in the world was how we pursued social justice? I think that this ties in with the last question is like this idea of being able to really fully belong to ourselves and belong to each other. I deeply love myself and it makes it almost impossible for me to believe the lies that supremacists try to tell me about my body and about my community and about my history. I think that if love was something that we were organizing around, it would mean that we were structuring our spaces around care. How do we create organizations and movements and networks and even the work of philanthropy? How do we structure all of those systems such that care is being provided? And I mean it in the most material and literal ways, right? That care showed up in how we did our budgeting. Care showed up in how we address conflict. That's maybe the biggest piece of it. We're not fighting to be righteous over each other. We're not fighting to shrink each other. But we would get into fights that were about how do we lift each other up? How do we fight for what we most care about? How do we fight for what we long for? How do we fight side by side? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, For our last question, I'd like to bring the conversation back to where we started. For folks who are new to Octavia Butler's work, where do you suggest they start and what should they keep in mind while they're reading? Normally, I say to start with Wild Seed. Mm -hmm. I love that book and I love the central character on Yanwu is this incredible healer and I, I love that one. But because of the timing we're in right now, Octavia wrote this other book, the parable of the sower. Mm. It's actually the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents. And those books start in 2024. Mm. She has a president who runs on the slogan, make America great again. And that's like a Christian fundamentalist, regressive political force. People are living in very heightened have and have not dynamics. And there's just a lot happening that feels super, super relevant for this moment. The climate catastrophe is popping off. I think that's the place to start. It just hit the bestseller list this year for the first time, which is one of the things that she manifested in her life that she wanted to be on the bestseller list. So every time you buy a book, you're helping her dreams come true in the ancestral realm. Was she never on the bestseller list until now? That's right. Wow. So I feel like I need to go right now and read the parable of the sower. Yes. The parallels to today, I mean, it's almost eerie. 
It is not almost eerie. <laughs> it is definitely emphatically eerie. I couldn't agree more. I'm dying to read it. Octavia Butler and Parable of the Sower in particular have been mentioned by so many of our guests, mm. Kanohi Nishikawa, Nancy Pearl, and Jeff Schwager, and Mark Ashiro. They all talked about Octavia's work and Parable of the Sower in particular. I've read some Octavia Butler, but clearly not enough. And I'm really eager to read Parable of the Sower. Yeah, we both have to get on that. And let's listen to Adrian's podcast with her co-host, Toshi Reagan. It's called Octavia's Parables. In each episode, they do a deep dive into every chapter of the book. They think about the political lessons, the interpersonal lessons. So I think we should read a chapter, listen, read a chapter, listen. Yes, I think so too. <laughs> let's do that. Let's do that. Great. And that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And listen, I'm going to take a, a slight detour from our usual ending to say, please, it's so helpful if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We read them and it's a boost to know that y'all are out there listening and it really helps other people find us. So please, please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. And be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Adrian at adrianmariebrown.net or on Twitter as adrianmarie. Marie is spelled M-A-R-E-E. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.